Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Which is, of course... Amharic for Achtung Achtung. Now, is I, it? I know, yes, I, know I, and I, I know I don't need to tell you this, James, but Amharic is the language spoken by 22 million Ethiopian people, yes. including the country's military, of course. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Which is why, the, it's why the Italians find it so difficult. <laughs> can communicate. Yeah. Ethiopia's war started early with the Italians invading in 1935, of course. In fact, we haven't really touched on that at all. We should do no, East Africa at do. some point. Yeah, because there's interesting people like that. Slim, for example. Yeah. And he actually makes a few cock-ups in, in East Africa. And Ord Wingate. Yeah. But the, but the interesting thing about, about had, had Slim been making the mistakes he makes in Europe or in North Africa, for example, mm. he might not have got away with it. Yep. But, but it's the advantage of being kind of a long way from the no centre of power. You know, you can make those mistakes and learn from them. That's the key thing. Yeah. Without, but anyway, uh, welcome anyway. to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. You see what happens? I, we just digress. A few episodes I've named <laughs> my least favourite Second World War film. Um, uh, this prompted the ire of Alex Celesius, who goes by the Twitter ham- handle of Grumpy Young Man. He said... Frankly disgraceful comments from Al Murray and James Holland on <laughs> hashtag We Have Ways regarding Escape to Victory. Truly fantastic film. We'll have to write one of those private eye cancel my subscription letters. <laughs> well, I you know, I'm sorry he feels that way. But I it's shit. It just is. <laughs> it's a rubbish film. Oh, you're gonna set them all off again. I had a, tons of people in my Twitter uh Mentions going, oh, how can you not like that film? Well, because it's diabolical. Anyway. Uh, listen, I've got something to say to you, actually. Um, talking yeah. of war films, in which we serve, loosely, but, you know, Noel Coward film yep. based um, very heavily on, on Mountbatten and HMS mm. Kelly and all the rest of it. Um, I, was, uh, I was reading a, a midshipman's journal from 1943 for the, the Sicily book, and um, he was saying, oh, well, you know, while we stopped in Algiers, we went to the cinema and watched In Which We Serve. And we all came out thinking it was rather good and very accurate. Really? Yes. That's interesting. In 1943. Amazing. Isn't it? Wow. How about that? Well, it made me think I better go and have another look at it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Goodness. Yeah. Right. Well, we've um, uh, we've a million emails and tweets and stuff. Um, uh, 
What I thought I would do was start off with, um, we've got a couple of things, people, rather than asking us questions, commenting on stuff, which I think is, is always interesting. Um, Andy Bryson. Now, this is this is an email, so, you know, Andy's clearly probably 63 or but He's retired. <laughs> He's got time to write a long email. Right. Um, loving the podcast, guys. Been catching up on a few episodes over the last few days and really enjoyed the one on the 14th of January about law and the war where Hans Frank was mentioned. If you haven't read it, I can heartily recommend Philippe Sand's book, East West Street. Oh, yes. Have you read this? Yeah, it's fantastic. I haven't. I haven't. It's about the birth of the concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide in international law, both of which concepts were thought out by academics from... uh, Is it Lvov that's spelled L-W-O-W? Yes. It's one of those L's with a line in it. Who had family caught up in the genocide, sanctioned by Frank and Otto von Wachter. Absolutely fascinating book, as Philippe, who's a professor of law on QC, appearing in the International Criminal Court, also had family who were murdered in that killing spree. Mm. Um, you, you've read this, right? Yeah, it's utterly brilliant. He's he's a really really amazing guy. Actually, he's a he's a fantastic he's he's a fantastic writer. He's a he's a just internationally renowned um, human rights lawyer. Very yeah. kind of. Um, very cultured, very worldly, and, and he's just fascinating. And the book is really, really just eye-opening. And again, it's just one of those little moments in the Second World War. So it's, it's this town just outside Lviv, which at the time was Lemberg, and, and he he charts the whole yep. history of Lemberg because Lemberg is one of his it's one of his towns in one of his parts of the world that has just been chewed over a zillion times in history. And and just in the first half of the 20th century, it goes from being yeah. um, Austrian, Polish, Soviet, Polish again, again German, Soviet again. Yeah. And, and changes its name four times, I think, or certainly three times. His relatives are outside in this town outside Lemberg, Lvov, Lviv. Um, and yeah, they are massacred on the orders of Otto von Vector. And what's really interesting is Philippe got to know Horst von Vector, who is Otto von Vector's son, who is a mm. really charming and delightful fellow, but but refuses to accept that his father did anything bad. He just right. just can't get his head around it. So he's the absolute antithesis of um, Nicholas Frank, who I remember yeah. telling you about and saying saying how much he hated his father and his mother. Um, and, and he's very interesting. One thing that Philippe then did was he did this series for the BBC, a podcast series for the BBC. Yes, the, well, this is what Rat Andy Lines. goes on. Andy goes oh, on my to God. say. It's just, you know, I don't want to diss our own podcast, but it's literally the best series podcast I've ever heard. I mean, it's absolutely right. amazing. Still and you on. really should listen to it. It's so interesting. Um, and what happens to Otto von Vector at the end of the war and how he escapes and all the rest of it. Yeah, because Andy goes on to say that Philip Sands did an amazing Storyville documentary. That's um, it. We, uh, uh, he thinks called My Nazi Legacy or My Nazi That's Past it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where, it. where he met uh, Frank and von Vechter's sons and travelled yes. with them through Poland and Lithuania to visit places where their fathers had been and to confront how that affected them the contrast between Frank who hated his father and von Vechter who idolised his father and thought he'd been a good man was really fascinating and yeah it is it fascinating Terribly sad and poignant, and then and then he meant then he goes on to mention the rat line. So, um, I think a double recommendation from you and from a listener for that yeah, rat line for the rat line podcast. He's also okay. coming. He's also coming to Short Valley. Actually, he's coming. Oh, to really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, to talk on the about Sunday. What? He is talking about the German trauma. Him and Anthony Beaver together talking about the German oh, really? trauma at the end of the war. 
be oh, fascinating. Excellent. That'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, then we have another email from uh, Sagrilaris. Is the, I just love that no one uses their name. Uh, gentlemen. Starts off with gentlemen. Oh, know. that's nice. It's, it's arguable. Great podcast, but I spent the first 30 episodes thinking the bald guy was the historian. <laughs> um, uh, my dad served <laughs> on Orc-class minesweepers in the US Navy. And yep, they would set off mines with a rifle. So this refers back to a thing we yes. asked before, and, and we weren't sure about it. Um, uh, uh, but actually, on Twitter, I've had loads of people saying, oh, no, I, I've heard of this. <coughs> from relatives or whatever. One of my fa- one of his favourite stories was when they pulled the battleship New Jersey out of mothballs. His boat was tasked with towing the target barge to retune its big guns. They spent hours getting off the coast and then stringing out the mile of tow cable, only to have the New Jersey nail the target on its first shot from miles away, completely <laughs> obliterating the target. That's they got amazing, to do, isn't it? Yeah, they got to do the whole thing over again the next day, and the guns never got anywhere near the target again. How about yeah. that? Yeah, we should point out actually that neither of us are bald. No, no, this is a head of hair I've got going on here. Yeah, exactly. A good head yeah. of hair. I mean, it's I'm just, on time uh, off and, and they've grown some. Well, not time off, obviously, this is time on. But I've not got to be the pub landlord so because he's bald. Yeah, but you're not. Uh, but I'm not. I mean, it's oh. the, the magic of the stage right there. Now. Could you believe it? <laughs> um, now, um, uh, people will have um, hopefully by now heard the first of our Thursdays with Daniel. Todman, and there's another one to come uh, uh, the Thursday after this, I think. Yes, I'll be honest with you, dear listener. We record these in lumps, so I'm not entirely entirely sure of the sequencing. It was really interesting talking to him, wasn't it? Yeah, he's just brilliant. What a nice guy as well. Yeah, lovely bloke. And um, I do like I do I, the thing he's talking about doing next, um, which will be revealed on our next on our second Daniel Todman pod- podcast, is absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I and um, again, having been, uh, we talked about Hamburg last time. Having been to Hamburg um, recently and looked at the, there's the museum about Operation Gomorrah in the burned out because there's a cathedral at St. Nikolai or a church, a big church, which used to have the tallest spire in Europe and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, the, in the crypt there, they have a museum about Gomorrah um, that's pretty interesting. But the thing I was struck by, well, the thing, the thing I'm, I keep being struck by, and we talked about bombing the other day, is, and, and da- this will relate, when you hear Daniel next Thursday, dear, dear listener, you'll understand why I'm going about this, is that it's, I always think it's interesting that bombing, having been, area bombing having been touted as this, you know, uh, miracle political weapon, really, because that was the idea, wasn't it? Is you yeah. bomb a population, the population would then go to its government one way or another and say enough is enough, what, the, what we're going through is intolerable. We won't stand it. It doesn't. It didn't work. The 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 thing the British take from the Blitz is basically an attitude of well, fuck you then, yes. right? Uh, and the thing that the Germans take from being blitzed in return is is kind of the same. I, 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 it's a thing I'm always struck by, and that that the, the, the British realize this because one of the things one of the things that's interesting in the in the in the Gomorrah Museum in, in Hamburg, is it set, is they, it starts off, there's the history of the church, there's the history of the, the, where, where, how it was built, the great fire in Hamburg in, the, I think, the 1840s, and the place being rebuilt, and then, and then there's a brief history of the rise of the Nazi regime, and then you get to the bombing. And the first thing in the museum is Coventry. Coventryeren, as Goebbels called it, to Coventry a city, right? And it, the museum basically says... It was Coventry that led directly to Hamburg. That 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 
because of because of the destruction of Coventry, the British pressed on with their strategic bombing campaign. Now the thing is that's not right. That's not quite that's no, it's not, not. not quite it's not quite right. Because after all specs for heavies were laid down in the 30s. It was always seen as part of an extension of the blockade. And people believed the duet thing from the from the 20s, which is this the Italian... The bomb will always get through. and, and bomb will always know, get and... through. Stanley Baldwin says as much. And uh, But 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 what I'm... What, it's, again, it's the thing I keep being struck by. Is the British go through this in the in London, in Coventry, in Liverpool, all over the country. And, they, uh, and their population says, no... Like I said, fuck you to the Germans. Yes, that they don't think actually what bombing Germany will do is galvanise the German population because you do have soldiers in you have soldiers in German soldiers in Normandy who are fighting because of the Terrorfliegen, who are fighting for Ham yes. because of Hamburg. The same way you've got British soldiers fighting for Coventry as reve- as, as yes. revenge, and I think it's really interesting this thing in the mix that that. They still carry on with these bombing campaigns because obviously they're going to have an economic effect. They're going to have a military effect. Blah blah blah. But the, the the original the original thing that starts off strategic bombing is this political theory, basically. Yes, there's this, there's this amazing there's this amazing quote from Richard Pierce, who is the um, uh, commander in chief of Bomber Command in I think you know um, uh, before Harris, and yeah. I think it's October 1941. Um, he has this this sort of Chatham House rules meeting with with key people yeah. and tells them the truth about the bombing campaign and he says you know and this is post butt report where it's been yeah. proved that they're not very accurate so just go sorry just go just before i get on to pierce just a, a step backwards yeah. is that so much has already been invested in air power and the yeah, bomber yeah. so so you've gone down this route and then what is revealed by the butt report of which is comes out in the summer of 1941 is that it's the accuracy is just absolutely all over the place. I mean then it's totally inaccurate. So what do you do because you've already you've already gone down a route that that really you've either got to go okay that was completely wrong and we've got to completely rethink our entire war strategy or you just press on regardless and, and try and hone it and get better navigational techniques and improve accuracy and all the rest of it. But what do you do in the interim? Well what you do in the interim is you say Actually, we don't have any scruples about this. We're just going to kill lots of people because yeah. that is also that's going to be bad for morale. But more importantly, from it just being bad for morale, what it's really going to do is um, it'll just you know you'll kill lots of civilians, their workers. Um, it'll cause yeah. disruption, yeah. Um, and that will do it. And, and and what we're going to do is although. Our morale was absolutely fine during the Blitz. That's because, in the big scheme of things, what the Germans delivered wasn't very much. But what we're going to do is we're going to deliver absolute Armageddon. And frankly, by the end of July, beginning of August 1943, when you look at the remains of Hamburg, they've kind of got a point. You know, because they do. They do deliver it. They deliver, you know, what what they deliver is is out of all proportion to what is being delivered by the Luftwaffe. But it's still, but it's miles from the thing that initiates the Yes, that is true. As this sort of war-winning, this war-winning weapon, this idea that yes, it, yes. it will generate a morale, a, 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 a political morale collapse effect. Yes, a, a, but what they're going to do is they're because, going to, they're going to, but 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 strategic air campaign never stands still, and that's the point. It's, yeah. and so yeah. so what you have in 1939 is so completely different to what you've got in 1945. Yeah. and uh, and and I think the the people who 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 post butt report of summer of 1941 go okay we're going to continue with this what we're also going to do is we're going to dramatically improve our ability to deliver this 
Yeah. And I think what you see from Britain in the first part of the war is this absolute concentration of um, of technology towards winning the Battle of the Atlantic above all. So yeah. out of that comes the cavity magnetron. Out of that yeah. comes improvements in high-frequency direction finding, um, you know, huff-duff, um, all yeah. this kind of stuff, you know, improving your air umbrella, all those kind of things. But a lot of those 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 um, new technologies can then be applied to air power and strategic air campaign. And first you get, fall, you get G, then you get um, oboe, then you get uh, um, H2S. You know, these are really, you know, H2S is the kind of first effective ground mapping radar. Yeah. And, and th- you know, they're just light years away in, in, in technical terms from what they have in 1930, September 1939. Yeah. And so your, your strategic air campaign is constantly evolving. What is interesting about, about Harris is that he continues to think believe that area bombing is the only way to do it, and that's because when he takes over in the beginning of 1940, that's, that's all they possibly can do. But what, but what is being proved, disproved all the time, is that actually by sort of spring of 1944, bomber command can can can, can operate as accurately by night as the U.S. Um, uh, Army Air Forces can operate by day. There's no difference yeah. whatsoever. And as 617 Squadron um, proves under the tenorship of Lena Cheshire, they can actually get really accurate. You know, yeah. you can really deliver precision bombing if you're skilled enough and trained enough and got the balls enough. Yeah. You know, through that combination of, uh, of a technology applied to experience and, and skill and all the rest of it. And I think where, where Harris falls short is in his refusal to um, adapt more flexibly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. Where, where most of the criticism for Harris derives from, and I think is to a large extent justified. I mean, you know, I mentioned the other day that I've been reading Max Hastings' new book on, on Chastise. I mean, you know, he has never had a good word to say about Harris. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he wrote that book about Bomber Command in the late 1970s, I think it was, or certainly mm. 19, early 1980s. So a little while ago now. But between that time and writing Chastise, which he wrote last year... Nothing's changed. I mean, you know, he's still <laughs> massively down on him, and and I, I I think Harris deserves a slightly more nuanced kind of view. But but you absolutely can criticise his overall strategy. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break now. So uh, Tolo Igeninyani, which our Ethiopian listeners will know, means see you soon. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Uh, James and I digressed hard there in part one with just, you know, I said I'd been in Hamburg. The next thing we know, we've got... Anyway, right. 20 minutes later. Yeah, 20 minutes later. Um, Yes, welcome back. Now, we've a load of questions to answer, so I thought we'd have a go. Um, Ken Reaney says, hi, guys. Absolutely loving the podcast. Um, We love you back, Ken. What's the story of the Bren carrier? Uh, it was the must-have toy in the late 50s. I'd like to know the background. Well, the Bren carrier, universal carrier, depending, is an armoured personnel carrier. I mean, you can call it that, even though it doesn't look like a modern APC with a lid and a back door. I mean, it's an open fighting compartment. Yep. It's it's a little, basically, a, a, a tracked vehicle, a light tracked vehicle, weighed three tonnes or something like that, of which they made... And up till 1960 as well. So this 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 has a long life. Developed by Vickers Armstrong until 1960, they made 115,000 of the things. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and I know tanks are sort of bigger and sexier, but this is the Bren carrier is like 
It's basically the, the British Army's mule. When it's not yes. using mules, actual mules, like it did end up having to do on occasion, it's the sort of, it's the infantry's mule. So it's yeah. a, an ammo car- carrier. It's a, a light armoured vehicle for bringing a Bren gun up, bringing fire to bear. It's uh, some were used as mortar, would have mortars in the back just getting blokes about on difficult terrain and all that sort of thing. It's actually an incredibly important bit of kit. Yeah, and, it, and it's, in, you know, the, 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 the armour around it, the armour plating is very thin um, yeah. by end of the war standards, but by 1939 standards, it'll stop a bullet, no problem. And, and yeah. um, you know, it's just giving you a little bit of protection. I mean, it gets developed in the late 1930s as all part of this whole idea that any army we have is going to be 100% mechanised. Yeah. And Britain in 1939 is the only army in the entire world that has a 100% mechanised army. You know, and this all goes back to the battle dress as well. It's why you don't want flappy bits all over the place. You just want a short jacket so you can get in and out of vehicles quickly yep. and easily without catching anything. Uh, and it's all part of that whole kind of modernisation of the army. So we're going to have a small army, but it's going to be mechanised and it's going to be modern. And the, the, the carrier, the universal carrier, just fits into that, that strategy, that plan. And... Yep. They're incredibly versatile and they're very rugged and, and pretty robust. And they've, you know, unlike most truck vehicles, they've got a steering wheel and they're, they're dead easy. You've driven one, I've driven one. Yep. They're very easy to drive, aren't they? They're, they're yeah, yeah, cinch. Yeah. You know, they're great fun. Yeah. They're used by farmers, you know, across the length and breadth of the, of the, of the land in the 1950s. 1940s and 50s because of course the army was sort of selling them all off it's such a good utility vehicle and they were made all over the world they're made in australia they're made in the in the u.s and basically i think the americans used them as well am i right in thinking that yeah yeah yeah, they they did and they were just completely brilliant in the jungle because actually getting getting mules in 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 burma or um or the philippines or new guinea wasn't really a possibility but this was your workers you're absolutely bang on i mean this is where you you know they're they're mainly for kind of shifting stuff more than anything else yeah and it'd go in a glider so you'll see it in airborne assault stuff too so i mean it it basically i mean it it is known as a brain gun carrier but universal carrier really is the right name for it because yeah because that's what you're looking at is a thing that's absolutely everywhere and across the board the most the most produced armored fighting vehicle of all time i didn't know that yeah that's amazing well, I suppose 115,000, yeah, that's going to trump the T-34, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right, Reese Jones says, um, Dear Alan James, congratulations on such a superb podcast series. Um, <laughs> you can see why um, we, who we choose, can't you? Yeah, exactly. And the idea for a National Archive is a must, which is that thing we talked about. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. we've got to do that. Got to do that. follow up, yeah. Now, I wonder, could you discuss the initiative and effectiveness of early German paratroop operations, in particular in Belgium early in the war? Thank you. Keep up the excellent work. Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about, um, well, Eben ML is the headline uh, action, of course, isn't it? Where, yeah. where there's a fort on the Belgian, uh, on the Belgian border. They yeah. land a handful of gliders with sappers on top and basically uh, blow, the, blow up the doors so the garrison can't get in and out and, and uh, no good to anybody. And difficult flying they come in they come in over they come in from germany over the border it's a i mean it's an absolutely brilliant way of of circumventing this fort without without announcing your intentions and obviously that the fort at ebedomeo is a, a great big plum prize target so it's a really really smart way of getting around it and the germans have been had been experimenting with um airborne soldiers in the the moment they got going really once the once the, the wehrmacht was sort of back on uh, although they were their Luftwaffe soldiers, obviously they're their air force soldiers. The Russian it was the Russians actually who first experimented with 
parachute troops in the 20s, I think. And you've got these um, horrendous film that, that, or pictures of Russian parachutes. They jump, they climb out, roll down the wing off the plane they were in and open their chute. But they didn't really, they didn't really, you know, it was a, that was the Soviets proving how modern they were in the in the interwar um, period. But the but the the Germans differing. If, I mean, Ebenezer. I mean, in lots of ways, what happens with airborne operations is people their sort of mind tends to gravitate to the second successful one because there were stacks of absolutely disastrous parachute operations. Um, yeah. in Donbass in April 1940, for example, is one yeah. where yeah, yeah. where where this whole company of Falschmjäger get completely destroyed by a bunch yeah. of Norwegians. And Norwegians, you know, in 1940, they have many many um, good attributes. Norwegians, but but being you know fine tuned soldiers is not yeah. one of them. And and there's also one of one of the bridges at Rotterdam. They that is a yes. complete fiasco. A, yep. And also the other big thing is is that on the 10th of May 1940, which is kind of day one of the Blitzkrieg um, in the west of of Falgelb, um, they do 353 aircraft, most of which are transports carrying yep. Falschmjäger. Yep. And that is the worst single day for the Luftwaffe in terms of losses at any point in the entire Second World War. <laughs> And it's on a day in which, you know, we filter out that it's just non-stop, you know, Nazi war machine coming towards you. Yeah. Well, but the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe does very badly in the first few days of Falgelb, doesn't it, actually? Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it absolutely does. It's yeah. super effective, but the losses, are, the losses are sky high. Terrible, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But, yeah, so, so, so basically, you, you, you know, you, you, I mean, the thing is, though, um, the, 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 the thing is, Reese, Reese Jones, is, is that airborne, op- airborne operations... In general, if you have to characterise them, um, are extremely high risk. So often go completely wrong, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or are characterised by total chaos, a very high casualty rate, and all, and all those sort of things. I mean, the the, the German Falschmjäger, his parachute harness was 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 a point on his, in the middle of his back. He didn't float down the way we picture a parachutist holding onto two straps and manipulating the parachute he literally dangled from the thing yes and they wore knee and elbow pads the idea was that they'd somehow try and land themselves um without uh, breaking their kneecaps yeah without breaking their legs and kneecaps and lots of them did and so at crete you've stories of you know that 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 it it being described literally as a as a as a pheasant shoot with these blokes coming dangling down from their parachute harnesses unable to steer their parachutes unable to to draw or use a weapon effectively and just being being killed on their floating on the on their way down so so the the thing about i mean i mean the interesting thing and it's like so much stuff in 1940 in the in in the blitzkrieg is this is embryonic technology the allies i mean a lot like the mark one and mark two tanks the allies take one look at and go right well we need to do that but we need to do it properly bigger better with reliable equipment in a in a way that's essentially reproducible i'm not just and not just not just relying because what the Nazis rely, what the Germans rely on hugely in the summer of 1940 it's all brand new and no one's thought of a way of dealing with this yet. Is that fair yes, to say? Yes, but, but yeah, yeah, I think it is. And I think one of the things that, that you know, the, the, the airborne operations, certainly, that, whether it be German, whether it be American, or whether it be British, they're always sort of seen as being the elite. You know, you have to be yeah. a volunteer. So you're using your initiative more. You're, you want to be good. You, you don't just want to, you're not that sort of category C soldier who just wants yeah. to keep his head down. You know, you are really pumped. You know, you're, you are special forces, effectively. And, and you, there's this issue that the Allies never quite square away 
is that you're delivering among your very, very best troops to the battlefield by your least good aircrew. Yeah. Because if you're if you're trying to be a pilot or a navigator, he wants to be on a DC three, you know, <laughs> on a yeah. Dakota or C forty seven rather. You know, you, you you know, that's the dregs really. You know, you don't want to be a transport carrier, you want to be in a Spitfire or a or a or a Mustang or, or I don't know, flying a Marauder or something. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be flying um, C forty sevens, and they just never square this. You know, they well, never and, square well, it. and by the and by the same token, if you're the RAF, you've got a bomber offensive that's more important than ferrying people dressed in car. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you tend to get so tends. It's not you know, it's not universal by any stretch of imagination, but you tend to get the kind of the less good pilots and aircrew manning those planes, but they're delivering the among the very best troops you've got to the battlefield, and it's just. It's it's a problem. I mean, crikey, I've just been looking at the the glider effort over Sicily, and what a fiasco! Oh, it's unbelievable. Don't go there. I mean, I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. So they come up with this huge Hopkinson who takes over from Boy Browning. So what happens is Boy Browning comes over as first airborne division commander. They then realise yep. that what they need is an airborne advisor um, yep. at Allied Forces headquarters because because. Eisenhower and Alexander and Patton and Monty haven't got the first clue about this stuff because it's just not on their ken. So Boy Browning gets, gets bumped upstairs to um, be airborne advisor. And this guy called Major General Hopkinson, Hoppy Hopkinson, takes over. And he's just a total glider zealot. You know, I mean, he's sort of messianic about it beyond any kind of sense of reason whatsoever. And so goes, okay, for the British effort, what we're going to do is we're going to make it, we're going to use lots and lots of glider troops. And Monty just sort of goes, okay, yeah, great, whatever. As long as they can do what I want them to do, I'm, I'm up for that. And he goes, no problem, our guys are going to be absolutely fantastic. He then tells the, the commander of the um, um, glider pilot regiment, a chap called Chatterton, says, yeah. okay, this is what's going to happen. And Chatterton goes, we haven't got any gliders. And he goes, oh, no, you don't worry about that. We've got these American ones coming. He goes, but we haven't trained on those American ones. Ah, you'll get the hang of it. But they're completely different, sir. Look, either you do this and do it and shut up, or I'm going to sack you and send you home. What's it yeah. going to be? So he takes them. By the time they launch Operation Husky with 144 different gliders, average night flying training is 1.2 hours per yep. pilot. Yep. Jesus. Yep. I mean, it is... It is Beyond unbelievable. You, you, I mean, it's just such a cock-up. It's not true. Yes. Have you read Chatterton's book? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. It, it's it's really, really good. I mean, it, yeah. it, it is sort of... And then I was in the middle of this terrible situation and uh, carried on. It's a very it's very much a... Um, uh, so I took my orders and I got on with it. But, I had I mean, sleepless nights worrying about this, about the drop and all the rest yeah, of it. But yeah, I knew yeah, I yeah. had to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And out of 144 gliders... One lands on its prescribed landing yeah. zone. Yeah. One. Yeah. One. And that's a lesson learned for D-Day in a way that Dieppe... <laughs> yeah, not, maybe isn't. Nothing, nothing to do with it. Right, anyway, now, I digress. Airborne operations. Um, uh, Emily Crosby writes and says, Hi, guys. Fascinated by the podcast. Oh, I'll take that. As is common, my studies at school and university went up to 1939 and no further... So it's really interesting to learn more about the fighting of the war itself. Could you exp here's the question though, this is a, it's this is a this is a doozy. Could you explain the significance stroke impact of the Spanish Civil War on the fighting of the Second World War? I have distant memories of learning that some flight technologies were effectively trialed during the conflict. Well, yes, the Condor Legion. As it became well, there known. Were there were Italians there, there were Russians there, there yep. were um the German Condor Legion of course. Yep. Basically, everyone um, except the British out of the main European players. 
Just a few, but there were a few, there were a few socialist British and commies and stuff. Yeah, but no one, no one engaged in actual um, operations no. per se. And you, no. you, you, so you, the Luftwaffe do this thing of having people um, volunteer, don't they? As it were, in inverted commas, in, and they're there as tourists. And yes, they have to go in, in, in civvy suits. In civvies. Because it was Heyer Herman. Uh, yes, 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 he absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Gallant and, yeah. um, and Vic and various of them. Yeah, so, of also, so lots of Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe toughs, basically. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of done their, uh, done their kind of undergraduate bit in Spain, hadn't they? Yeah. And, w- and would be attacking shipping. Yes. And... Guernica, uh, and, and then the Guernica, North. of course, which is the sort of headline, the headline moment for the Condor Legion, where which which uh, and you know t- t- we were talking about area bombing earlier is that Guernica is seen as oh my god, look what happens when the bomber always gets through, um, look yep. look at what can be inflicted, look at the power yes. of the bomber, um, and and although Guernica's a one off, really, they're they're not they're not flying against um, a fighter defence screen or any of that sort of. Mm. Stuff, I mean, Germans. They? I mean, the good thing that the Germans get out of it is they they're able to finger test four. Their, the finger four. Yeah, which is is so if you hold up your hand, um, and and your four fingers, so your your uh, middle finger is your lead, your your, yep. your fighter leader. Um, your the one on your left, your index finger would be your wingman. Yeah. Then your second pair are the other two fingers, yep. and um, and that that's your. That's your finger for your swarm, and um, they learn that, and that's a that's a good lesson. Although that's again, uh, the, the 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 RAF Vic is better in defence um, because yeah. you're tighter together. Finger four is quite spread out, um, so that's great if you you control the airspace and you can dictate how and when you want to move. Yeah, but but I think what's interesting about the Condor Legion actually is is it's always been seen as it gives the Luftwaffe this this great head start. Well, actually, it doesn't it? Doesn't because the opposition is is kind of basically non-existent. So yeah. one of the lessons they learn from it is you don't need radio, you don't need ground controllers because you just go off and take off and just do what the hell you like. Um, and, and so a lot of the lessons that are learned of the Condor Legion absolutely hit a brick wall the moment they come up against Britain in the Battle of Britain because Britain's got an air defence system which no one yeah. else has had, uh, yeah. and the and the Luftwaffe just aren't prepared for this. They haven't thought about that. Um, and so all the stuff that, that works when you hold all the aces and you control the, sc- the airspace, all that, all those lessons from the from Spain, they're in place in you know against Poland and against France and the Low Countries, but that doesn't work in Britain. So you, you know it, it's it's a kind of a mixed bag what they learn really, I think in 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 Spain, you know because the opposition's so weak and so ineffective, it doesn't teach them an awful lot. Right. Well, there you go, Emily. We hope that answered your question. That's it from us. Today, uh, I hope your commute, dog walk, jog around the park, drive up the M6, or pruning the rain-soaked bushes in the back garden passed a little quicker than it might have done otherwise. <laughs> we know our role. We know who we are in our place. We See do. you later. We Bye do. for now. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.